organized by the president against the vice president and against the Congress in, over to, in order to overturn the 2020 presidential election. A defeat is what the political scientists call a self-coup because it's not the military or some other faction attacking the president. It's the president, fearful of defeat, overthrowing the constitutional process. Trump was prepared to seize the presidency and uh, likely to invoke the Insurrection Act and declare martial law. So we're going to tell the whole story of everything that happened. There was a violent insurrection, an attempted coup, and we were saved by Mike Pence's refusal to go along with that plan and the valor and the bravery of our officers who stood strong against the attempt to just overrun the whole process. Season 2, Episode 9, A Change of Venue. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis about the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro today for this week's episode uh, was from Jamie Raskin, Representative Raskin, of course, serving on the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, uh, regarding what he believes will be revealed at the public hearings to be held, hopefully, in May uh, next month. Uh, regarding the coup attempt by the Trump administration. So in this interview on April 18th, uh, just a couple of days ago, Raskin made it pretty clear that he expects that there will be very uh, shocking and also consequential testimony relayed for the first time to the American public involving facts that previously have not been widely known. So in this episode... I'm going to recount the latest slew of developments in the January 6th investigation. Uh, the pace of the story has been absolutely relentless. I probably had enough material to do a full episode within 48 hours of the completion of the last episode, which is pretty remarkable for a news story that is more than a year old at this point. Now, I think in as far as news coverage goes, uh, quite rightly, Ukraine has dominated the news. Uh, there's a gendercidal war of imperialist aggression being waged by Russia. And so, you know, it kind of makes sense that January 6th would take a back burner. Um, but again, this is just at a time when a lot of developments are absolutely heating up. So, you know, the idea that there's very little happening in the investigation uh, should be well and truly dead. Uh, there's been an, an onslaught daily, really since, uh, you know, the first anniversary at the beginning of the year, beginning of season two of the show. It has been just absolutely relentless, and so I will try to get caught up on all the events that occurred since uh, the last episode I put out. In the latest developments, uh, we've had the guilty verdict against Thomas Robertson, as well as the first acquittal in the capital insurrection cases. There's also the Navarro and Scavino contempt referrals, uh, the Department of Justice investigation into mishandling of classified documents by the outgoing Trump administration, and two rather important news articles, one from The Guardian, claiming that the January 6th committee now has all the evidence it needs to make a criminal referral for Donald Trump, and another from The New York Times, claiming that there's a split on the January 6th committee on the question of what to do about it. 
new information has also come to light from the discovery material in the Oath Keepers case, uh, basically the uh, signal chat logs, showing that these defendants were in contact with rally organizers. And there's also a series of texts from Senator Mike Lee showing that he took part in planning with Mark Meadows on the strategies that were available to the administration to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Also, two more individuals closely connected to Trump have appeared before the committee, and one witness who had already appeared appears to be in the process of negotiating a return to the committee to offer even more testimony, hopefully more forthcoming than the last testimony. And in addition to that, there's also the very strange case of the federal uh, law enforcement officers, including a member of Jill Biden's Secret Service detail, who were apparently duped by two men posing as federal law enforcement officers who gave them rent-free apartments in D.C. Uh, for some unspecified purpose. For the deeper dive uh, section of the show, I'm going to look at motions for changes of venue that have been submitted by January 6th defendants. I'm going to look at the arguments that have been submitted by some of them, um, which mainly can be summarized thusly. These defendants, despite their alleged crimes, see themselves as real patriots, real Americans, who are too good and virtuous to be tried by the residents of our nation's capital. Now, I know there are times in the show where I get a little normative. I, I do try to maintain something like a detached, neutral, objective viewpoint. But this is a story that gets me pig-biting mad. Thousands of Trumpist militants traveled from across the country to attack, attack Congress, and now they have the gall to argue that their crimes are so atrocious that they can't be tried fairly by a local jury in D.C. So I'm going to review some of their claims in the second half of the show and assess them. Spoiler alert, these are arguments by thugs who have taken part in political violence, whose attorneys are arguing that normal D.C. residents aren't capable of serving fairly on a jury. To my mind, these arguments summon up the specter of the all-white jury that was once a defining characteristic of the administration of criminal justice under the Jim Crow system. White supremacists shouldn't travel to a majority-minority American city and pronounce themselves too good to be tried for their crimes by local residents. And yet, in many of these cases, that's kind of what they appear to be doing, even if some of them do it more subtly than others. But now it's time for the latest update of arrests, convictions, and other court proceedings, as always, courtesy of the good people at Sedition Tracker. There have been a total of 781 individuals charged, an increase of four since our last episode. There have been a total of 378 indictments, an increase of one since the last episode. Four deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same as always. One acquittal, which I'll discuss in a moment. 259 convictions, an increase of 11 since the last episode, and 114 sentencings, an increase of 7 since the last episode. So, in news related to judicial outcomes, we have had some verdicts. Thomas Robertson, a former police officer from Rocky Mount, Virginia, was found guilty on six counts in a jury trial that concluded on April 11th, including four felony counts 
obstruction of an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding aiding and abetting, civil disorder, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted area with a deadly weapon, and he also bragged about taking a piss in Nancy Pelosi's toilet. He wasn't charged for that, but uh, tells you a lot about his character. You might also remember Robertson as the defendant who ordered over 30 guns to be delivered to a local gun dealer while he was out on bond. Another officer in his department and a close friend of his, Jacob Fracker, who had also been charged, traveled to D.C. with him and uh, took selfies with him in the Capitol, etc. and so forth, had already pleaded guilty to a felony count of conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States and testified against Robertson, who again was found guilty on six counts, including four felonies. Now we get to what I would regard as, quite frankly, the bad news. Uh, there has now been one acquittal in the Capitol Insurrection series of cases. This one in the case of one Matthew Martin. Hashtag Matthew Martin. This isn't a case that really most people would have noticed at all, if not for the fact that he, unlike many other misdemeanor defendants, decided to go to trial. Uh, the misdemeanor defendants typically were charged with four counts, uh, the same four counts, and um, they were typically allowed to plead guilty to one count, usually parading and demonstrating in a capital area. Um, and Martin didn't do that. Martin decided he wanted to take his case to trial, where he was acquitted of all counts. So Martin is 42. Uh, he looks a lot older, actually. He, he looks kind of like a Walter Mitty type of sort of uh, generic, pasty, MAGA mob tourist, and made it into the Capitol on January 6th and pretended not to notice all the violence and destruction and testified to that, that, no, I, you know, well, maybe I saw something, but it didn't look that bad, you know, that sort of thing, Con consistently minimizing what he saw in January 6th. The case was heard by Trump appointee Trevor McFadden, who I believe I have mentioned in the show before. So Martin had been charged with these same four familiar charges of these parading defendants, uh, but who didn't seem to have committed any acts of violence. Knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds without lawful authority, Disorderly conduct, which impedes the conduct of governmental business, disruptive conduct in the Capitol buildings, and parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol buildings. Now, Martin is a defense contractor who, in a strange bit of serendipity, happens to uh, work for a organization that does contract work for the Department of Energy, or at least he did work for them, and holds a Q-level security clearance, which, of course, to QAnon-friendly people, or QAnon, uh, people who study QAnon, at least, uh, you will recognize that. Um, I don't know if they're going to start a rumor saying that, you know, of course he got off, you know, it's the white hats. Matthew Martin is Q. He was Q all along. Um, if they're not saying that, maybe that's a rumor that, that we, should, we should start. Um, in any event, he, uh, you know, it's probably because of that 
right, his line of work in the defense industry. Even though he lost his job, maybe he wants to seek future employment. And so um, decided to go to trial on, on these counts. So, um, he, you know, of course, like I said, he did lose his job at the Department of Energy facility where he'd worked in Los Alamos, New Mexico. But, you know, again, this effectively gives him kind of a clean slate. And, you know, he certainly apply again for a similar position. Um, as far as I'm concerned, this is really just kind of nullification from the bench. Martin opted for a bench trial rather than jury trial. And we've had four trials to date, two of which have been bench trials before Trevor McFadden. In the first, which I covered in the last episode, we found that uh, Trevor McFadden found Cowboys for Trump founder Coy Griffin not guilty on all but one count, that count being the count of being in a restricted area. In this instance, he decided to acquit Martin of all counts. Um, according to the reporting, he appeared to matter to Martin that, you know, it mattered to the judge anyway, to McFadden, that Martin uh, may not have known that he wasn't permitted in. And, uh, you know, he apparently walked past two officers who didn't try to stop him. Um, and, you know, that apparently, uh, ignorance of the law, is an excuse. Apparently this is an, in an intent crime all of a sudden. Um, I mean, it's very curious. I mean, the, the, the loop, you know, the hoops you have to jump through uh, to exonerate him on all four counts. Are, you know, kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, the officers basically weren't fighting at this point, you know, as the judge acknowledged, because they were outnumbered and basically just trying to keep an eye on things until reinforcement arrives. So we'll see what effect this has on other cases. Um, I don't think this kind of argument is going to fly with other judges. But, you know, at this point, if you're a misdemeanor defendant and you haven't pled yet, um, you know, there's no real reason for you to accept a plea. You might as well take your chances and see, you know, do you get assigned to Trevor McFadden? Uh, if so, hey, why not, you know, um, I mean, especially if, if they're already before McFadden, why should any of them take a plea? Uh, take their chances on a bench trial. Um, you know, because why not? I mean, if McFadden had just wanted to show leniency, he could have done what he did in the Griffin case, which is, you know, split the difference, which is one of the things that often happens in the legal system, right? Find him, you know, guilty on some, some charge, but not on others. Even in this case, you know, uh, just find him guilty on one charge, acquit him on the other three. He decided not to do that. And so I think this acquittal is going to really stick in the crawl of anybody who regards January 6th as an existential threat to electoral democracy. And already it's had re repercussions, right? So apparently at least one other misdemeanor defendant has decided that, no, they don't want to take a plea. They want to take their chances before the judge. I believe that case is assigned to uh, Judge Royce Lamberth, a Reagan appointee who has not been uh, nearly so generous to these defendants as the Trump appointee Trevor McFadden. Nonetheless, uh, you know, McFadden, you know, was saying, well, this is, this is kind of a close case. It's not a close case. I mean, it's on video. And the part of what, what gets me is that McFadden goes to work every day in a building that is protected by the Department of Justice, right? It is secured by federal officers. 
And the notion that someone could just wander into his courtroom and do whatever they want as long as they want, you know, like Martin did in the Capitol building. And again, Congress is superior to the district court in D.C., whether McFadden acknowledges that or not. Um, you know, it, it's kind of galling, right? He wouldn't tolerate this kind of behavior in his courtroom. Uh, I don't know why he thinks it is acceptable for you know, this to happen in Congress. So if there was ever to be civil disobedience in Trevor McFadden's courtroom, you know, you could just cite, use the same argument that Martin used, right? I didn't notice the guards. I didn't realize that this was a restricted area. People are allowed in this building sometimes. How was I to know? Uh, but it's just rank hypocrisy for someone who is protected every day by federal law enforcement to say that someone like Martin uh, should be exonerated, uh, you know, found not guilty on all accounts. And yet, that's what McFadden has done here. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's, he's on the watch list, right? Uh, people should keep a very close eye on Trevor McFadden's cases. And so, to that end, uh, I'd like to point out that McFadden actually has on his docket Three high-profile cases all going to trial in uh, the coming weeks. So uh, all three of them have pretrial hearings in May. One of them is for Mr. Hale Cusinelli, uh, and that is on May 6th at 10 a.m. Uh, Nicholas Rodine is going to have a pretrial hearing on May 13th at 10 a.m. And both Kevin and Hunter Seyfried uh, on May 20th at 10 a.m. So these will all be in person. Uh, there will be no telephonic line for any of those. Of course, you may remember Hale Cusinelli, right? He's the fellow with the Hitler mustache. Nicholas Rodin uh, was one of the people who was arrested and identified very early on. Um, not the brightest bulb in the pack. Uh, wore his employer identification. You know, apparently, I think he's a telemarketer. Wore that to the Capitol uh, attack and made it inside the Capitol. And, of course, Kevin Hunter Seafried from Delaware. Um, Kevin is a father and son, and Kevin is a father, and he was the man uh, depicted in the now iconic photograph carrying a Confederate battle flag around the Capitol. So, you know, I think McFadden probably will take a tougher line in these cases than he did with Martin, but you never know, right? Um, these Federalist Society people like McFadden like to talk about judicial philosophy, but it's just striking to me that he just decided to give Martin a hall pass to just enter the Capitol, which is a, you know, home of a co-equal branch of government, and it was closed to the public for an extremely important constitutionally mandated function, and just let him wander around, you know, take pictures, do whatever he liked, uh, even though it was really clear that the Capitol was being overrun by a mob. Um, you know, and Martin's defense is I was too dumb to recognize that I was part of a mob that was overrunning the Capitol, and McFadden just lapped it up. So, you know, if you have fascists in front of you, and they arrive in your courtroom, and they're committing crimes against the United States, and you decide to give them a pass, it's fair to say that you have a fascist judicial philosophy. So, you know, McFadden, who was always kind of marginal, you know, nonetheless, I mean, has done some things that, you know, made him look a little tough, right? I mean, he denied, for, he denied, for example, 
uh, pretrial release for Ail Cusinelli, the most unlovable Nazi defendant. You know, but nonetheless, uh, in this instance, I think you know these upcoming trials should be scrutinized. And people say that federal judges aren't responsive to public opinion. Uh, I don't know that that's entirely true. And I do think that there should be some kind of scrutiny for Trump appointees who are on the bench, especially when they show this propensity to acquit people of crimes that they are on video committing in broad daylight in the halls of Congress during a constitutionally mandated function of Congress. All right, so this is a part of the show where we're going to do a bit of a defendant profile. This week I'm going to do a little bit of a quicker one. I'm not really going to go into too much depth on the background of these defendants, uh, in part because I, I wanted to actually show talk about what the, the charging documents, particularly the statement of facts in this case, uh, reveals about the work process of the Department of Justice and can tell us about why it is it takes, for some cases, to go for so long between identification and uh, actual arrest. So, uh, the defendants that I'm going to look at today um, are two men who have been arrested, uh, arrested late last week, actually. And, you know, it just brings up a lot of the issues that, and a lot of complexities and what, you know, really one might imagine would be simple cases, right? I mean, but really, you know, a case like Martin's case, you know, <laughs> and the acquittal, um, relatively simple case. This is a, a more complicated case, uh, as we'll see. Um, you know, the FBI and the Department of Justice, you know, they don't just simply have to draw up the charging documents. They also have to collate all the evidence in these cases, decide on how best to move forward, verify absolutely everything, and decide how, you know, they're going to determine whether or not these cases relate to other cases, right? Because this is a large crime committed uh, on the part of a mob, some of whom appear to be members of organized conspiracies, or at least that are alleged to have been parts of organized conspiracies. So it's a complex web of relationships between defendants that I would like to bring to light here because uh, I think this one case uh, is kind of unique in that regard. So this is actually the case of two defendants who were arrested in early April, a 33-year-old Matthew LeBrun of New Orleans, Louisiana, who was assigned the hashtag ETSPB by online sedition hunters, and Stephen Miles, 39, uh, laterally, I suppose, of Portland, Oregon, now of Florida, hashtag TanParkerPB, who is a former Marine sergeant current proud boy, and pansexual porn actor. LeBrun is yet another paramilitary gang member, uh, but kind of what's interesting and really kind of brought my attention to this is that he doesn't seem like he can just pick just one gang. Uh, on January 6th, he, he appeared to represent all the gangs. So he's dressed like an Oath Keeper, in fact, apparently has contact with Oath Keepers on January 6th. Um, and he's got a 3%er patch on his tactical vest. And, uh, you know, even though he's a proud boy, right, you know, uh, Terrio sent out that memo saying, dress in street clothes, don't dress as us. He's not even dressed as a proud boy. I mean, he's really dressed like a, 
a militia guy, uh, not even, you know, wearing street clothes, you know, like someone like Joe Biggs in his, uh, you know, black and white plaid shirt. Uh, he's gone full militia. So it's kind of hard, you know, is he Oath Keeper? Is he a Proud Boy? Is he a, is he a three percenter, right? I know I talked about the three percent of the Oath Keeper episode that, you know, uh, both leaders at, you know, Rhodes uh, and Vanderbilt, you know, had kind of a, an agreement where they said, well, you can be an Oath Keeper and a three percenter. They're not mutually exclusive. They have similar belief structures. Um, and LeBrun appears to have, you know, really taken this to heart. Um, Although it is interesting that most of his militia style guard is black. So, I mean, maybe he was, you know, going along with that idea. Maybe he's trying to represent black block, although I don't think that, that, that you know, his, um, his all the, the patches on his uh, plate carrier uh, really, you know, look something like, like Antifa. Um, but he just, he just seems to be kind of schizophrenic, right? You know, um, and it's just really strange. Both Miles and Lebrun are linked, uh, sorry, you know, yeah, Miles, not Miles Lebrun. Miles and Lebrun are linked to both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, although they were both assigned uh, Proud Boy uh, tags, because as we'll see in a moment, uh, most of the, the attacking that they took part with uh, the group uh, was mainly a group of Proud Boys from Florida. So, one, one of the things that struck me, including in LeBrun's statement of facts, is that um, the investigators became aware of LeBrun from messages on the phone of another defendant, who was identified in the statement of facts only as Defendant 1. They had a search warrant for this defendant's phone, and during that time, they found what they described as numerous text messages from LeBrun, including one which is a selfie, and with a company text reading simply, Matthew LeBrun, which, of course, you know, greatly aids in identification, right? So, you know, this looks like he was sending a, a photograph of himself with a caption for aid in identification so this other person would know him, presumably, at January 6th. Um, but it tells us several things. Uh, the first thing it tells us is that LeBrun was identified by fairly standard investigative practices in May of 2021, right? So that's when they, they got the information from Defendant One's phone, including the, you know, pretty clear identification uh, that LeBrun basically made of himself. Yet LeBrun wasn't arrested until April 8th, 2022, which again shows the, the complexity. It's straightforward, you know, on the part of the FBI, but um, they have to also then back it up through identifications based on interviews with people known to LeBrun in New Orleans, which, according to the CHOP charging documents, they then do. Second thing is that the fact that LeBrun is texting an unidentified defendant with a selfie with his name, um, you know, Again, he's trying to identify himself to someone who's unknown so that they will know when they meet up. That really shows networking and cooperation, right? I mean, the word for that you know, would be conspiracy, even though he's not been charged with that. Um, but it also reveals a key vulnerability. How many other cases, you know, can they work through? 
you know, from phone to phone to phone, looking at contacts and messages to identify other January 6th defendants. A lot of times it's probably not going to be as easy as this, where one of them sends a captioned photograph of themselves to another person unknown to them, uh, you know, very much benefiting the investigation by the FBI. But nonetheless, the same networks that these defendants used to facilitate their attack on the Capitol can operate in reverse and be used to identify them, which, to my mind, is all to the good. But of course, again, you know, even though this information all has to be verified. And one interesting detail in this chart, the charging document, statement of facts, was that at some point, the FBI appears to have had an agent waiting for miles at an airport in Florida where a TSA agent pointed out miles to the FBI agent for the purposes of identification, and the agent then followed miles to a vehicle, which apparently he ran the plate on and was able to determine was registered in Miles' name. So it shows, you know, and this shows up in other charging documents as well, but, you know, why does it take so long? Well, sometimes, you know, they're going to go and identify people um, by talking to people who they believe are known to the uh, suspect. Other times, as in this case, they actually have an FBI agent appear to tail and work with another agency, in this instance the TSA, to identify uh, the defendant. So, again, that all takes time. Another thing is that the FBI uh, received information from an individual who met with Miles and LeBrun on January 6th and took a selfie with them, who was identified in Witness 1 in the Statement of Facts. Now, this is curious, because this, in the Statement of Facts at least, has no further uh, date information. We don't know when this, this Witness 1, who was there on January 6th, and decided to have a selfie taken with Miles and LeBrun, we don't know when this person provided this selfie to the FBI. Uh, and this witness um, said, you know, basically wasn't able, able to identify them by name, but was able to uh, tell the FBI where they were from. So, you know, again, this is another contact they had to follow up on, but, you know, presumably they weren't able to really do anything with this information, uh, except, you know, really put them on the radar, and then that got followed up when they got the information from the phone in May. All right, so on January 5th, January 6th, excuse me, uh, Miles and LeBrun are both visible with video evidence walking to the Capitol together with two other defendants who have already been arrested prior to uh, last week. And these were Zachary Johnson and Dion Rajewski. Johnson, who's 33, who has a hashtag gogglesman, and Johnson, 61, hashtag badmarinepb, who are also both members of the Proud Boys gang. So, you know, again, it does show, you know, kind of like with the Oath Keepers, uh, the FBI is more interested in some defendants than others, and so they're clued into the fact that these two defendants are probably Proud Boys due to the, the fact that in video evidence, they spend much of the day uh, with these other two known Proud Boys who've already been arrested and identified, uh, and, you know, these are, are the people that they decide to go to the Capitol with. The FBI also obtained information from AT&T, Facebook, and Google to verify the whereabouts 
of miles during the attack on the Capitol. And they also used information from T-Mobile to identify another device whose owner is redacted. Maybe defended one? I don't know. But there's another device. It's a T-Mobile device. So that's AT&T, Facebook, Google, and T-Mobile. They have to get the information uh, from these different uh, telecommunications and tech firms. And they also use information from Hertz Rent-A-Car and Venmo and the insurance company USAA and also J.P. Morgan Chase, the bank, to locate yet another associated defendant, Alan Fisher, a 28-year-old proud boy from Florida who was given the hashtag Rayban Terrorist, who was also arrested on January 12th, uh, same day as uh, Johnson and Rajewski. In addition to that, the Statement of Acts mentions that there was extensive communications between Miles, Rajewski, Johnson, and Fisher, uh, some of which are presumably texts. So, what do you have? Here we have five named defendants total, three of whom are arrested on one day, two of whom are arrested uh, less than a month later, um, all of whom are Proud Boys, and uh, mainly from Florida, we also have an unnamed defendant connected with January 6th who was in contact with Miles and an unnamed witness. They also have hundreds of pieces of telephonic communications between members of the group. They have an FBI agent traveling from the Florida airport to the Florida airport in person to identify Miles. They have coordination with another agency, the TSA. They have the interview with the persons who are known to LeBrun to help identify him in New Orleans. So, you know, I think I'll find out 15, 19 pages, something like that. It's an awful lot of work on the part of the FBI and the Department of Justice. And a lot of it looks like it is done very specifically to show this network of connections between this group of Proud Boys, some of whom have connections with other extremist gangs. So the overall picture that emerges is a complex one, right? So we have this important node of Proud Boy defendants, really, you know, um, foot soldiers, but self-organizing. And yet there's very little that's spelled out with specificity in the statement of facts as to why they are important, right? Other than the fact that, you know, obviously some of them are AFO defendants. Uh, you know, Miles is charged with AFO. LeBrun isn't charged with AFO. But the point is, that's why this takes so long, right? There's a possibility that some of these defendants were under government surveillance for at least part of this investigation. And that raises the question, you know, why, why did it take them so long, right? These are members of a violent gang. And, you know, um, several of them are charged with assault on law enforcement. You would think that would be a priority, right? I mean, we've already had cases uh, where, you know, people have died, right? You know, drunk driving, what have you. You know, people have died because... A January 6th defendant wasn't taken into custody. And it's also not cost-free for the government to decide not to arrest someone. Uh, it's come up at um, pretrial detention hearings, for example, where the, the defense will say, well, look, Your Honor, uh, they identified this person a year ago. And my client has not committed any crimes in that time, so that clearly shows that they are not a danger to the community. Now, I think that's kind of a specious argument, right? Because... These are people who have the sort of Damocles hanging over their head. They know that they can't really, they're not at liberty to commit crimes right now because they face additional scrutiny. 
but judges have bought it. You know, um, there have been a couple of cases where they say, well, okay, you're right, you know, um, if you brought me this person on January 7th, I would have detained them pre-trial, but clearly you waited a, a year, you made this decision to wait a year, um, they, you know, and they act like it's volitional, right, as though the government has infinite resources, spoiler alert, they don't. Nonetheless, um, you know, if the defendant in question hasn't committed any further crimes, they're being judged, especially now in the age of COVID, not to be a danger, and therefore uh, are, are allowed to be released. So there are lots of reasons why the government should want to arrest these defendants as soon as they possibly can. So again, the question is why? Now, some of this, as I've hinted at before, goes to work process and just the sheer size of the case. We've been tracking these arrests throughout the course of the podcast, and it seems like there's a fairly hard limit of about 10 arrests a week. And maximal, right? That's maximal. So it takes about that much time to do this kind of investigation and to draw up the required documents. And that's probably why the Department of Justice has now requested the hiring of an additional 131 attorneys specifically to help in the prosecution of capital insurrection cases. Now, again, this is, you know, it would have been great to see them do this, like, immediately, right, far earlier in the budget cycle, because it literally does take an act of Congress to hire uh, attorneys at the Justice Department. Um, you know, maybe they thought they could stopgap it through attorneys working out of other offices across the United States. That clearly hasn't worked, so their solution is to get another 131 attorneys uh, to process these cases. We don't know how many identified defendants are in the pipeline. Um, probably hundreds. So, you know, because again, we see this charge document after charging document. Um, a lot of the people who are coming up or were people who were identified uh, nearly a year ago. Uh, or, you know, I, I don't know, I want to say over a year ago at this point, but, you know, again, uh, you know, May of last year uh, in Miles' LeBrun's case. So, in this case, you know, um, part of the reason, though, why I do think it, it took so long uh, is that we have this nexus of foot soldiers all talking to one another, both before and after January 6th. And, you know, to my mind, this brings a rather curious question. Since we know that these men were communicating with one another to commit a crime on January 6th, and indeed carried on communicating with one another after January 6th, why is there no conspiracy charge? What I think this case points to is the possibility of yet another seditious conspiracy case even larger than the Oath Keepers case, this time against the Proud Boys, right? Because in the allegations and documents, everything that the uh, Oath Keepers did, the Proud Boys have essentially done too. So, you know, that'll be another set of charging documents, you know, splitting people up into different tranches of defendants. Uh, there would probably be even more defendants in a Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case than there are in the Oath Keepers case, where they basically have, uh, you know, one set of charging documents and then sort of 
two tranches of people who are going to trial on the seditious conspiracy charges. So, you know, I think the review of the statement of facts and the evidence described in it uh, makes it pretty clear that this is going to take a lot of time. And, you know, there's been a lot of effort put into it already. And it goes a long way to explaining why the cases of some of these defendants, these felony defendants who are gang members, are nonetheless taking so long from identification to arrest. It's complex networks of people. They have to figure out the interrelationships. They have to figure out how the cases relate to one another and make charging decisions from there. Okay, so let's move on to the latest news developments. On April 6th, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 220 to 203. All Democrats plus uh, Cheney and Kinzinger basically voting against all the Republicans. To hold Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro in contempt of Congress for failing to comply with subpoenas issued by the, White House, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. Dan Scavino served as Trump's Deputy Chief of Staff, and Peter Navarro served as the Assistant to the President, a new create, uh, position created for him, and Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy. Scavino was the longest-serving aide in the White House and was reputed to have been the author of many of Trump's tweets. Scavino, of course, came to politics from his experience in golf course management. Scavino is reputed to have been present at many meetings where strategies to overturn the presidential election were discussed, and is also believed to have been with Trump during many of the events of January 5th and 6th. Navarro is reputed to have been deeply involved in the plot, and the committee noted that he had no basis to assert executive privilege as, quote, None of the official responsibilities of Mr. Navarro's positions included advising President Trump about the 2020 presidential election or the roles and responsibilities of Congress and the Vice President during the January 6, 2021 joint session of Congress. End quote. Which is kind of scathing, right? I mean, here you have someone whose basically job supposedly involves manufacturing trade, and yet, apparently, at the end of the Trump administration, all he's concerned about is overturning the free and fair election results of the 2020 presidential election. So that's just a really great example of snarky understatement, right? Um, I mean, you know, this guy's closely working with Bannon, allegedly, to overturn the election. And Navarro, of course, himself credits himself with the idea of the, the quote, Green Bay Sweep, which is an apparent reference to the deeply relevant constitutional scholarship of the late Packers head coach, Vince Lombardi. Navarro was also the direct supervisor of Joanna Jojo Miller, the former intern used by the Trump administration to ghostwrite a poorly written and even more poorly argued report that they uh, promoted with a false attribution to Catherine Fries. And is also an a uh, Coincidentally, an unidentified Navarro aide who allegedly would bring Sidney Powell to the White House residence for secret meetings with Trump, Navarro, and almost certainly others as well to discuss overturning the election results.
Now, well, I'm sure the committee would probably find the uh, testimony of Scavino and Navarro useful. Um, it's worth noting that, you know, criminal referrals are apparently not a priority of the Department of Justice at the moment. They acted on the referral of Steve Bannon, but Mark Meadows' referral has been languishing for over four months. In other news, on April 7th, it came to light that the Department of Justice is investigating the improper handling, i.e. theft, of 15 boxes of material from the White House taken to Mar-a-Lago by Donald Trump. This development came to light in response to a request from the House Oversight Committee, which had taken an interest in the handling of this material by Trump. The committee found that the National Archives had blocked access to the material recovered from Mar-a-Lago on the basis that the Justice Department was already conducting its own inquiry. And so, in response, Committee Chair Maloney said that the Department of Justice was obstructing the Congressional inquiry, but also expressed some sensitivity to the question of wanting to avoid interference with an ongoing investigation. Representative Maloney asked for a response from Attorney General Merrick Garland within a week as to whether or not they could get their hands on these documents. Uh, and as far as I can tell, if Garland has gotten back to Maloney, uh, nothing at all has been made public. So a bit of a spat there, again, between Congress and the Department of Justice, but again, putting that aside, presumably it's good news that the Department of Justice is actually investigating this one particular instance of malfeasance on the part of the Trump administration. Um, but once again, it looks like they're doing it in a way that's designed to maximize ill will toward Merrick Garland. Uh, it's kind of maddening. Apparently the only time they really let any news out about whether or not they're investigating Trump is when they interfere with congressional investigation of Trump. Except we can't even get a clear statement on that. Um, I do think that the word the obstruction that Representative Maloney used is probably a bit too much. But I really don't think it would have hurt the Department of Justice to be more transparent. They're smart people. They can find a way to go beyond boilerplate language about not commenting on ongoing investigations uh, and actually uh, address the, the concern, the legitimate concern, of Congress in investigating the improper handling of material, uh, especially classified material, by the outgoing Trump administration. Another story that garnered a lot of attention recently is yet another one of those articles that makes a big stir for a while and then seems to disappear. On April 9th and 10th, articles appeared in Politico and the New York Times reporting that there was a split between the House, members of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the question of whether or not a criminal referral for, to President Donald Trump should be issued. Now, this is kind of burying the lead. The real gist of this recording, as far as I'm concerned, is that the committee has the kind of evidence that would justify a criminal referral. And the question now is whether a criminal referral is actually warranted, right? And DOJ could certainly take it up on its own. In an effort to clear things up, Representative Cheney appeared on CNN and said this, quote, There's not really a dispute on the committee. The committee is really working in a collaborative way to discuss these issues as we are with all the issues we're addressing and we'll continue to work together to do so. 
I wouldn't characterize there being a dispute on the committee. I think it is the single most collaborative committee on which I've ever served. End quote. So, I found that compelling. Nonetheless, there is a brouhaha with people arguing about the role of the committee, the Department of Justice, and the overarching question of what's going to be done about Trump. But somewhat lost in the shuffle, I think, was other reporting. It's what prompted the reporting in these other articles to begin with, which was reporting um, that the House Select Committee had received what they regard as definitive proof that there was, in fact, contact between the mob and the Trump campaign. Um, and, you know, again, Trump campaign itself, obviously, was the leading organ behind the effort to overturn the election. So if there's direct contact between the campaign and the mob, that's something that, you know, is highly relevant to any possible criminal referral. Now, this reporting came from an April 8th article from Hugo Lowell. Um, and, you know, seems well-sourced, although, again, the usual information about anonymous sourcing uh, always applies, nonetheless. Now, again, as I've mentioned before, you know, there was a time where the Friday news dump um, was a time where they would release stories that they wanted to, to die. But in the January 6th cases, that's just not proven to be true at all. It's been a pattern in January 6th for some reason. And this Guardian story by Hugo Lowell is no exception to that. April 8th was on a Friday, and this, you know, again, kind of big news. I don't even know. It's like you wouldn't, you wouldn't think this would be something that you would want to bury. You know, again, they have information that they believe warrants a criminal referral. Now, the, the other parts, you know, that's, that's a lead, and that's why I think most people went with uh, in the uh, Hugo Lowell Guardian article. Um, but it also also some details of the investigation that I think uh, are, you know, relevant and worthy of consideration. Investigation itself, of course, being led by Timothy Heafy, uh, who I've discussed earlier, appointed last August to be the lead uh, chief investigator uh, for the committee. And Heafy has created basically three teams of investigators uh, and identified them thusly. There's the gold team, which is an investigation targeting Donald Trump. There's the red team, an investigation targeting rally organizers. And the purple team, which is targeting uh, basically what many people call militias, what I prefer to call paramilitary gangs. I mean, you know, Presumably the Proud Boys, right? I mean, and the Proud Boys would be included in that. They they don't even, you know, they're not really part of the militia movement. I mean, they style themselves much more as a, uh, you know, a street gang, right? I mean, the ridiculous breakfast cereal rituals and, and things of that nature, uh, even though, you know, obviously, I mean, they're all gangs. Now, the only plausible source for this reporting by Lowell is the committee itself, and Lowell claims was verified by two sources. So, you know, seems plausible. Um, but the question is, what was so important that these sources decided to surface now and break radio silence? Um, it's this. The claim is that there's evidence of coordination offered in testimony and in new video 
not available at the current time to the public. And the video evidence appears to have been sourced from documentary filmmaker Nick Queston, whose team uh, recorded the secret garage meeting between militia members that we learned about in the last episode. So this video evidence purports to show a direct link between groups such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the organizers of the rally, right? I mean, again, you know, you had Terry and Rhodes together in the same place at the same time uh, with, you know, uh, Latinos for Trump and other organizers. So, now, I, we don't know. But, I mean, the committee has uh, reportedly been investigating this video evidence for a week. So, um, I'm just spitballing here. I mean, we know the audio for the garage meeting wasn't good, but there have been instances of expert lip readers giving testimony in court. And so, who knows? Maybe they were able to get something from the garage meeting, even with a bad audio. The reporting also specifically mentioned links between these gangs and Ali Alexander and Alex Jones and communications between all the various parties. Um, and that, you know, all three investigative teams took part in Question's uh, seven-hour testimony before the committee. So to my mind, that's what's huge here, right? Not the Times article reporting a split in the committee that Liz Cheney says isn't real. I understand some of the pessimism. Democrats have a really long track record of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And our system is really great at jailing poor people, but very bad at imposing even mild penalties of any kind on rich people. Uh, nonetheless, I think that the glimpse that we've had into Heathy's investigation, it should be bigger news, right? So, again, just repeat. There are three teams, each one investigating different targets, one investigating the militia, one investigating the rally organizers, and one investigating Trump himself. So Trump has a whole team all to himself uh, in his, is a target of the investigation uh, by the committee. And that, of course, is led by former prosecutors. The committee has direct evidence of communications between organized pillar paramilitary gangs who led the attack and rally organizers to include Alex Jones, who is Trump's personal stand-in, and, of course, Ali Alexander. And finally, all this evidence is so compelling that the committee is considering a criminal referral for Trump himself. So they have a smoking gun. And my assumption is that this is something that's pretty easily understood, right? What they have has to be something that is easily understood, not like some complex financial deal, as was the case in the New York case, um, but evidence that they feel could lead to a criminal prosecution of the former president of the United States. Now, leave it to the New York Times to be able to take something like that and turn it around to the idea that the news story is that there's a split in the committee. The lead is that there's evidence of a smoking gun. This is the tape on the door of the Watergate investigation. Uh, this is the, the missing was it 17 and a half minutes in the, in the Watergate tapes. So um, the story is there's a smoking gun, and they're just it's going to take them a minute uh, to figure out what they're going to do with it. Now, my own take on this, I, I would like to imagine, at least, has been fairly consistent. Way back when the committee was convened, uh, you'll find that I said that a clever person would take the time, 
you know, to uh, plan this out in such a way that the findings would be released for maximum public impact. So, uh, the spring before the midterms. Now, my cynical reasoning uh, was that, you know, that, you know that, that, again, that may not be the real reason. That's what I would do. Um, you know, if you're looking at this in terms of politics. But this could also just be it's taken this long because it's a genuinely complex case. And they only even just hired Timothy Heafy last August, after all. Um, but be that as it may, you know, all that is happening too. Now, the other part of all of this is that all this debate over when the committee is going to make a criminal referral is moot. At least not until after the public hearings have been held by the select committee. And a lot of the reporting hasn't really made a big deal out of this. But even though the investigation is really going to be concluded at the point where they have the hearings, these hearings will have a deliberative character. As a consequence of this deliberative character, you know, they, they're, they're the public-facing part of the investigative work of the committee. And as such, any criminal referral for Trump or members of his inner circle that may or may not take place from the committee can really only take place after the conclusion of the hearings. To do otherwise would be like a grand jury issuing an indictment before it's really even heard evidence. That's just not going to happen. So, despite all the ink that's been spilled on the topic of why the committee hasn't issued a referral, or if they're going to issue a referral, um, no one said this in any of the reporting that I've read, uh, but it seems such an obvious point to me that I'm almost embarrassed that I have to make it if the committee is going to make criminal referrals for things other than contempt of Congress, right? Criminal referrals related to the events of January 6th. It's going to happen after the uh, public hearings in May or, you know, whatever those, those are. Now, again, I'm not saying that there definitely will be a criminal referral at the conclusion of the public hearings, but only that they're, you know, they're not going to do it before then. You don't issue a verdict before you have a trial. And even though this isn't, strictly speaking, a judicial proceeding, it has all the trappings of one. And therefore, if they're going to make a criminal referral, um, that's when they're going to do it. I feel that this is as good a time to mention that, you know, as any, that we don't really know what kinds of evidence the Department of Justice really has that links capital attackers and organizers. There are two additional news items that came out this week that really lead us to believe that this is one of the most closely guarded secrets of this investigation. The first of these was a release by Ed Vallejo, uh, the Oath Keeper, in the discovery of the Oath Keeper's case. You'll remember Vallejo as one of the seditious conspiracy defendants who uh, was in charge of what they called the QRF, but really um, his job was to look after the guns that the Oath Keepers left at the hotel in Virginia and to be ready in case that, uh, as they say in the, 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 the signal chats, SHTF, shit hits the fan, right? He's, he's basically ready to convey these weapons to the Oath Keepers at the Capitol in, you know, in case basically what Stuart Rhodes uh, or Connie Meggs or whoever decides that's time to do that. So as part of his motion to secure pretrial release, by the one that he's not going to win, by the way, 
Uh, Vallejo released the text communications between the members of the group that have been charged with seditious conspiracy, although there are other people who haven't been charged included in that chat. Now, as far as I can see, uh, none of these are actually exculpatory, but it really does kind of give a signal as to what the Department of Justice has and what the January 6th Committee has that they may be holding back, right? Because, you know, although they've quoted these signal chat logs extensively in the charging documents, this is everything. And so there's a lot more that's not in there. And some of the stuff that's not in there, curiously, is the stuff that links the Oath Keepers to event organizers. That Oath Keepers were in direct communication with these event organizers, which again relates to the, the news story uh, that we saw in The Guardian, right, that just talked about saying that there's evidence. Well, there's that video evidence, there was all that testimony from the filmmaker, but there's also this information that the Department of Justice has had all along, and they've not included in the charging documents because they don't have to. They are presumably going to save that for when and if they actually charge event organizers. So here are some select snippets uh, from the Oath Keepers' discovery of material. Again, uh, the logs of the communications, their formerly encrypted communications from Signal. One of them is from Stuart Rhodes, who wrote, quote, Actually, I was trying to put this in the chat with the event organizers. Emoji. So Rhodes is communicating directly, not, with, not in the Signal chat, but he's talking about the fact that he's directly communicating with the event organizers. In another section of the chat, there is a redacted person who wrote, Are we able to recommend these apps to event organizers? Ideally, they would post the recommendations on their event websites for all rallygoers to download the apps. Uh, end quote. So, again, he's trying to recommend, you know, encrypted communications for all the rallygoers. Why? Why would they need that? Hmm, I don't know. Presumably for command and control, right? So they can order the rally goers to go to the Capitol and to attack Congress. But, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into that there. Then in response, quote, Ideally, organizers would recommend Signal as the default, and Zello, Zello Breyer, or Bridgely as an alternate when Signal is down. End quote. There's also this from a redacted person, quote, Ronnie De Jackson, Texas, inside the Capitol, needs OK Oath Keepers' help. Anyone inside? Then later on, let's say presumably the same person, quote, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, on the move, needs protection. If anyone inside, cover him. He has critical data to protect. End quote. So that raises a lot of questions. And I'm, I'm going to review the, uh, the logs in full. Uh, and go over the material in the next episode. But, again, it's not surprising these kind of details have been kept private. People like Jackson, uh, a member of the House Sedition Caucus, and Donald Trump's former physician, are the exact sort of people that would be the targets of this kind of investigation. And so it's unlikely that the government would tip their hand by putting this in the charging documents. But, of course, during the discovery process, they have to give it to the defendants. And Vallejo's lawyers in a masterful move just put it all you know out there with their motion 
in a similar vein, uh, another bit of evidence came out that really shows links between, uh, you know, some of the people who are on the inside to Congress, right? So basically between the administration and Congress showing uh, what, you know, one might call the clean coup. Texts from Senator Mike Lee of Utah to Mark Meadows have been released again uh, this time from the House Select Committee. So this is information for some reason that they've decided, yeah, we want this information out there right now. Now, as we'll see in a moment, what uh, Senator Lee of Utah said in these chats with Meadows very much at odds with uh, his public statements. Um, he does seem especially skeptical of Sidney Powell, but on the whole, if you go through them, he's broadly supportive of John Eastman's scheme to overturn the election, as we'll see. So I'll just go through and give the dates of some of the selected messages, uh, mainly from Senator Lee to Mark Meadows. November 22nd. Please tell me what I should be saying. Would, okay, this is just one that's kind of telling, right? And here you have uh, a senator, right, asking the White House Chief of Staff to just tell him what to say. It's crazy. This is, anyway, this is really nuts. Next one, November 22nd. There are a few of us in the Senate who want to be helpful. Parenthetical comment. Although I sense that number might be dwindling. November 23rd. Uh, again, lead Meadows. If you haven't yet watched tonight's episode of Life, Liberty, and Levin, you should do so if you can fit it in. Mark Levin makes a very compelling case for the need to lit for litigation related to this election. Parentheses, he's fond of these. Noteworthy, as we saw in the Jenny Thomas text. Uh, sorry, that's actually my parentheses. Um, you know, as we saw in the Jane Thomas text, uh, we see people at the very top of the DC food chain just looking at these conspiracy theorists uh, for, for guidance, right? So, I mean, you know, if you haven't listened to Mark Levin, I mean, this guy's a, a late-night radio uh, conspiracy angry nut job par excellence. And here you have Mike Lee, who's, you know, supposedly uh, a constitutionalist, right? Um, but, you know, where does he go for guidance? Talk radio, which is just kind of, you know, they've talk radio has taken over the Republican Party root and branch, which we knew. But now we've got tax evidence saying basically, uh, you know, um, that, that talk radio is more powerful than, than Sanders. That's where Sanders go uh, for their theories about things like coup attempts. Here's another one uh, also from November 22nd, 23rd. John Eastman has some really interesting research on this. The good news is that Eastman is proposing an approach that unlike what Sidney Powell has proposed would could be examined very quickly. <clears throat> my, my, maybe his text is not entirely grammatical. I'm basically saying that, you know, basically let, let's use the Eastman model, model rather than the, the City Powell model. December 8th. If a very small handful of states 
were to have their legislatures appoint alternative slates of gullies, there could be a path. January 3rd. Everything changes, of course, if the swing states submit competing slates of electors pursuant to state law. January 4th. It's not your fault, but I've been calling state legislatures legislators for hours today, and I'm going to spend hours doing the same tomorrow. I'm trying to figure out a path that I can persuasively defend, and this won't make it any easier, especially if others now think I'm doing this because he went after me, presumably Trump. This makes it a lot more compelling. Complicated. And it was complicated already. We need something from state legislatures to make this legitimate and to have any hope of winning. Even if they can't convene, it might be enough if a majority of them are willing to sign a statement indicating how they would vote. Which, wow, right? You know, he's acknowledging it's not legitimate. But, you know, it can be seen as legitimate if we get enough state legislatures to kind of sign off on it. So, which, by the way, you know, eventually does happen, right? Individual hundreds of state legislators uh, sign off on this scheme. So, as I mentioned in the very first episode of the second season, this is the kind of thing that we can expect to see in the run-up for public hearings. The, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack released this purposely at this time. So, I mean, you have the Oath Keeper's discovery information that was released by Vallejo in some misguided attempt to get released from pretrial detention. But the, the text from Mike Lee... Uh, you know, Sandra Lee are, are deliberate, right? And it raises the question of what other, what other material that the committee has. You know, Mark Meadows gave them, apparently, so much good stuff, and he's just one witness. All right. Now, I would be remiss at this point if I didn't mention the story of the scandal involving the Secret Service in D.C., where two men, Arian Tahirzadeh and Haider Ali, have been charged in a scheme to offer free apartments to federal law enforcement officials, including four members of the Secret Service, at least one of whom appears to have served on Joe Biden's protective detail. It's a complex story that would take an entire episode, but I'd just like to mention it briefly here because there are a couple of elements that make it relevant to the context of January 6th. And the first is that these men claimed, among other things, to be part of the investigation into the January 6th attack. And, you know, so that's that's kind of suspicious, right? But there have been allegations that perhaps these fellows were somehow involved in foreign intelligence. And so it, it shows that if you have one party undermining the rule of law and uh, democratic functions, this provides a huge opening to uh, potential bad actors. And the second is uh, this ongoing question, at least in my mind, on how law enforcement was to just duped into accepting how these two were some kind of federal officers reminds me a lot of what happened in on January 6th. Federal agents have spent over two decades now, uh, you know, as part of this global war on terror, right, uh, which has often involved harassing people who happen to have surnames associated with majority Muslim countries. And yet somehow these are two guys, one of an Iranian descent, one of Pakistani descent, um who are presenting themselves as federal law enforcement in D.C. without question, and they're handing out free apartments, and, and I mean, that's something in D.C. that never happens. 
a free apartment in D.C.? Are you nuts? That's not a deal that anyone ever gets. And yet, nobody's questioning this, right? So, from the beginning, you know, there should have been questions uh, regarding the law enforcement response to January 6th. You know, how, how could they have not seen it coming? Why weren't they ready? Don't we have a multi-trillion dollar, billion dollar, whatever, intelligence network that is specifically designed to detect these kinds of threats? You know, and yet there's this mob of extremists who plan an attack on the Capitol, on the Internet, you know, Facebook and websites, in the open. And they all arrived at the appointed date and time, and it seemed to have been a big surprise to everyone. And a lot of people have had questions. You know, federal law enforcement and uh, the intelligence community and national security, uh, these people are elite. They can't possibly be that dumb. And you know what? I think this case shows us that, yeah, actually, that they kind of can be. I mean, nobody's handing out free guns or apartments in D.C. That's not a thing that, 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 that actually happens. But apparently somehow it did, and multiple federal law enforcement personnel uncritically accepted it, despite the fact that there are policies against these kinds of gifts. So what does that tell you? Probably the problem, it seems to me, to be with the culture of, you know, federal law enforcement and law enforcement generally in this country. It didn't matter what the national origin or the surnames of these officers involved were. What they really saw, what the officers who were on the receiving end of this saw, was that there were these men, they had a military bearing, and they had all the right gear. They had so much tactical gear. You know, it's tactical, right? Um, there's been this bizarre fusion of police culture and gun culture in this country, this kind of obsession with military and paramilitary gear. And the obsession with this kind of, you know, these cool toys has had a kind of a, a pathological appeal to some men, uh, particularly, evidently, in law enforcement. You know, on some level, these guys had so much official-looking police gear, how could they not be police? Right? So, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily want to just single out law enforcement. I mean, it's human nature. Um, you know, if you present, have the right clothes, you present yourself in the right way, uh, you can pass unquestioned in certain contexts. Uh, 20 years ago, if I just carried a backpack around with me on any campus in the country, I could just go anywhere I wanted and pass myself off as a grad student, and everybody would just assume I was one because I looked apart. Nowadays, if I put on a blazer or a tweed jacket, I can go to any campus in the country, and people just assume that I'm faculty there, even if I've never visited that campus before. And I think that's similar to the way these paramilitary gangs have been able to get a pass from law enforcement, and how uh, Tahir's a day, and Ali are able to operate in this context. These guys have plate carriers and helmets and AR-15s. How could they be the good guys, right? They look official. This reminds me actually of a German story uh, that sounds like a fairy tale, but is actually a true story. The story of Wilhelm Voigt, the so-called Captain of Kupenik, uh, who was a petty criminal uh, who assembled a Prussian captain's uniform and used it to gather a crew of soldiers who he then used to rob the town hall of Kupenik, a town near Berlin, and steal about 4,000 marks simply by wearing the right clothes and issuing a few commands. So there's a problem where if your culture is sufficiently militarized, 
military uniforms and paraphernalia become just kind of a, a mark of unquestionable authority all on their own. And ultimately, in real life, uh, Voigt actually wound up getting a pardon from the Kaiser himself, right? So, you know, it, it is just really strange here that, and I'm sure we'll learn more about the, these developments, but, we, we, you know, there have been a lot of questions about things that have happened at different agencies surrounding January 6th, and this is more the same, right? I mean, I'm sorry, but there are some people, you know, that if you're accepting free apartments and guns and you're federal law enforcement, you either don't understand the law, uh, you don't understand the laws regarding gifts, you're either corrupt or you're, you're criminally stupid. There have also been some things that we know have happened, but don't have a lot of information about them. Uh, last week, Stephen Miller took the time to testify before the January 6th committee although the extent of his cooperation is unknown. Uh, if you were to ask me, you know, the category of people who are likely to cooperate, Miller is not one of them. Uh, he's ideologically motivated, he's an extremist, and he's probably, you know, unless there's something that implicates him directly and he's looking to make a deal, probably wasn't particularly helpful to the committee. Uh, again, we don't know what he said. Also... Uh, Kimberly Gilfoyle, a Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, met with the committee for nine hours on April the 18th. Now, again, what does she know? We don't know. Um, you know, I mean, if she knows things through Donald Trump Jr., well, he's, look, I mean, just that guy, you know, if I was Trump, would I trust him? You know, probably not. I mean, this is someone who doesn't seem to have a high degree of, uh, you know, competence or consistency or, uh, you know, just kind of a, a fail son. So, who knows? Who knows what Gilfoyle knows? Nine hours is an awfully long time to, to basically say nothing. Uh, she may have invoked the fifth a whole bunch of times. But again, we don't know. But the, the important thing is that there has been a spate of recent, recent witnesses we're very close to Trump, right? You know, family members like Kushner uh, and Ivanka, uh, you know, who've been testifying. Bill Foyle belongs in that category. And, of course, Miller, one of his closest advisors, also testifying. So, you know, it adds up to the sum of the evidence, although, you know, whether I mean, these are people who are probably more targets than anything else. So it's unknown whether or not they would be cooperating and to what extent and what to what extent they would have useful evidence anyway. I mean, from all the evidence that we've seen so far, I would love to see Mark Meadows. There's one person that I think really, really would be a great person to have before the committee. Uh, it would be Mark Meadows at this point. And in the last uh, thing that I'll mention before I move on to these uh, change of venue motions, uh, in late breaking development, Alex Jones, the InfoWars founder who stood in for Trump during the march from the Ellipse to the Capitol on January 6th is also apparently in talks with the committee regarding his own potential testimony and reportedly, according to the New York Times, may be seeking immunity in exchange for, who knows, some kind of deal, whatever kind of information he may have to offer.
Now, this comes on the heels of Jones's announcement, or rather the InfoWars announcement, on Monday the 18th of April, that InfoWars is filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in an apparent attempt by Jones to shield his assets from defamation lawsuits brought by the survivors of the victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School killings, an event that he falsely claimed was a hoax perpetrated by crisis actors. Jones has lost a series of three different defamation lawsuits related to the conspiracy theories that he concocted uh, relating to Sandy Hook and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shootings, and on April 20th was also ordered to pay $1 million worth of legal fees in one of these lawsuits. And he's done some, you know, some shady things here, right? So I believe at one point he's, he shifted $54 million to another firm that appears to be owned by his parents, um, which, you know, supposedly was uh, the result of some debts that Infowars occurred to uh, this firm that was apparently operating as some kind of contractor. Uh, that's pretty transparent, right? And, you know, trying to use bankruptcy to avoid having to pay plaintiffs is, you know, something that is a delay strategy. But it's not going to work, right? So, you know, I actually looked at the Texas statutes. They have a statute of the law that specifically bars this kind of behavior. Uh, result, you know, shifting assets from one entity to another, especially, you know, specifically mentioning, like, you know, uh, entities that are controlled by relatives. So, and, and that statute also imposes a liability, well, not liability, but um, basically... You know, if this means that there's more legal proceedings, uh, Jones would be liable for the legal fees of the, you know, that were incurred by the, the result of shifting these assets around in an attempt to avoid judgment in the civil suit. So, Alex Jones, his world is getting pretty small right now. And even though he's full of bluster on air, you know, he's not nearly been so... Uh, blustery in court, right? So, I mean, in one case, um, in the Sandy Hook case, it, he claimed that he made up his conspiracy theories as a result of a form of psychosis. So, yeah, I mean, that's not someone who, you know, a really, and that's, that's a really poor defense. Um, and, you know, again, if that's the kind of thing that he wants to concoct when he goes before the committee... I'd like to see him try. Jones, of course, knows an awful lot more than he's been willing to say to date. Uh, you'll recall that he claimed to have invoked the Fifth Amendment privilege against incriminating himself a hundred times or over a hundred times in his testimony before the January 6th committee in late January. So it's just a couple of months later. Why would he be coming back? You know, Jones is integral to the whole process of the uh, the insurrection, right? I mean, he physically led uh, people, you know, the mob, from the Ellipse to the Capitol. He claimed that he put up $500,000 for the rally to save America held at the Ellipse on January 6th. And, of course, Schroyer, one of his employees, uh, was arrested, uh, charged, as a result of being in a restricted area that he was uh, specifically barred from being in near the Capitol as a result of an earlier conviction. 
And, of course, there's ties between Jones and the Proud Boy, Biggs, right? So, you know, Joe Biggs is a former InfoWars employee uh, who is caught up in the Proud Boy case. You know, one of the main leaders of the Proud Boys as they made their way to the Capitol uh, and basically served as a uh, kind of, a, you know, a model for the behavior that uh, they want the rest of the crowd to employ, right? Involved at the very beginning of the riot where he urged people to, uh, apparently, or allegedly, of course, urged uh, people to attack officers. Uh, again, Biggs is uh, depicted, uh, pictured immediately, you know, with, uh, with Ryan Samsel, uh, one of the very first people to assault police, allegedly, on January 6th. Uh, immediately leading up to the attack, uh, to say something to him again. So, you know, this is someone with long ties and close association with Alex Jones, uh, who's deeply involved with the Proud Boys, who now are a major target of the FBI and the Department of Justice. So, some folks have speculated that, uh, you know, the desire of Jones to communicate with the committee at this time may have something to do with his bankruptcy and his defamation lawsuits, lawsuits, losses. I kind of doubt that, right? I mean, they, they can't, you know, these are state court cases. The, the committee is not in a position to, like, offer deals uh, with regard to any of these civil cases. Uh, to my mind, it's far more likely that the new evidence that I referenced earlier in the Gar Guardian article uh, by Hugo Lowell uh, may tie Jones somehow to both the militias and, of course, uh, other event organizers on January 6th. So, um, you know, the, the, again, Jones is one of those people who has links to uh, both the, the campaign and the tr sort of Trump inner circle uh, and also to, you know, the foot soldiers, right? So, I mean, uh, in Biggs, there's a link to the Proud Boys and, of course, uh, in the person of Stuart Rhodes, there's links to the Oath Keepers. And remember, as I mentioned in the Oath Keepers episodes, that Jones and Stuart Rhodes, or Elmer Rhodes, have a long relationship that appears to be kind of symbiotic. Um, for years, Rhodes was relying on InfoWars material to use as content on his Oath Keepers website, which, of course, now uh, you, you can only really visit in archive form. Um... And Rhodes himself appeared many times on Jones's show where they, you know, had this mutual relationship of, you know, talking about the deep state and the globalist elites and the other things that they're mad about that they mainly made up. So, you know, it's also true that in the, in the Oath Keepers discovery material that we found recently, uh, well, that we found, right, that Vallejo uh, released, it was there all along, defendants had access to it. Uh, the public hasn't, but, you know, thanks to some sloppy lawyering we now have. Um, we have Rhodes specifically mentioning Jones by name on the 31st of December, 2020. Rhodes writes to uh, his alleged co-conspirators, quote, Bottom line is those of you wanting to do PSD, private security, details will get plenty of opportunity." We may also end up assisting with the PSD for Alex Jones again, which was a great feather in our cap. We work superbly well, will, 
typo. He meant well. We worked superbly well with both Alex Jones' security staff, who are awesome guys, and with Praetorian Guard, also awesome veterans, led by SF Special Forces and SEAL veterans. They love all caps working with us because of our legit, quiet, professional demeanor and skill sets, end quote. So, you know, again, and this is part of the grift, right, that the Oath Keepers have run. Uh, Jones has used employing the Oath Keepers as a way to funnel money to Rhodes and other members of the Oath Keepers group, right? They're not licensed. They're not a professional security outfit. Uh, you know, they're supposedly a, you know, a volunteer political organization, not a militia, right? Um, that is, you know, operating, and yet they're they're also doing this. They've got the sideline that's unlicensed, no insurance, no background checks, no nothing like that. It's a huge loophole for people like Alex Jones to give them money. Um, so, yeah, and then you have uh, Rhodes himself, of course, at the underground garage meeting that is apparently comprised part of the new evidence cited in the Guardian article, which reported that the committee now feels that it has enough evidence linking these militia gang groups to rally organizers to move ahead with a criminal referral for Trump himself. Now, Alex Jones has a much better idea of what kind of incriminating material may now be in evidence at the committee, and so it's significant that he appears absolutely anxious to cut a deal, especially when, you know, he stonewalled the committee the last time he appeared before them, and he's got so much else on his plate. Why is he making this a priority now? He may be the link. He may, you know, communication with him uh, and Oath Keepers and or Proud Boys, right? So, you know, I mean, we're focused on Rhodes, but, you know, there's also that Biggs connection. Uh, and God knows who else uh, that, you know, may be in documentary evidence and causing Jones to rethink his invocation of the Fifth Amendment. So, you know, he's, I mean, I, I know I, I sometimes slip and fail to say allegedly, but, you know, you don't have to sit, slip and say, uh, you know, allegedly, don't have to say allegedly here, he's bankrupt, right? Or he's, he's claiming to be bankrupt, and he's psychotic by his old admission. Uh, and he's, you know, invoked the Fifth Amendment a hundred times, something innocent people have the right to do, something guilty people have a right to do, but something that's unlikely for innocent people to do. So, and yet he is now approaching the committee saying he's got something to say. You know, again, he was at the Willard. And, you know, he claimed that the White House specifically asked him to be the one to lead the mob from the Ellipse to the Capitol. So he's in as deep or deeper than anyone. And I don't know that, you know, he's going to get the immunity deal that he's looking for. But, you know... Maybe he will get some kind of deal uh, if he really has goods, you know, possibility perhaps of, of pleading to a lesser charge. But, you know, I'm sure the committee has everything they need for leverage. And that's the thing. If, you know, if he's coming to them and saying that he wants to talk, it's probably not for no reason. It's not his conscience. This is not someone uh, who's going to do that on the basis of a, a sudden injection of moral fiber. So that's what's happening in the news regarding the January 6th cases. 
since our last episode. And obviously I will try to keep on top of these stories as they develop. Now moving on to uh, the, you know, your value-added portion of the show where I'm going to examine the change of venue requests that have been filed by January 6th defendants uh, looking to have their cases moved from uh, D.C. to, well, somewhere else. They're asking for different places depending upon the different defendants. I have this odd interaction online, where else, of course, but Twitter, uh, with the wife of a January 6th defendant a couple of weeks ago. Uh, actually, it may have been over a month ago now. And she claimed that, uh, you know, well, she was much more familiar with the January 6th cases than I am, and she uses this as a basis to, to make the following assertion, that the D.C. jury pool is politically biased against the January 6th defendants, and so they should all be granted change of venue. And uh, the, the basis for this claim that she made was that, you know, all the attorneys in these cases, so it implies that she's speaking with someone more than just her husband's attorney, think that the D.C. jury pool is biased and therefore they can't possibly receive a fair trial in D.C. Now, obviously, I tried to refute this claim, but of course she wasn't ever going to change her mind. Uh, I was able to figure out who her husband was. He was a parading defendant uh, who, you know, went inside the Capitol. And of course, you know, she's probably never going to accept the idea that her adult husband is responsible for his own conduct. And so would much prefer to point the finger at the jury pool and claim that somehow the fault of D.C. residents that her husband and other members of the mob made some seditious choices on January 6th. So if you decide to, you know, follow the developments uh, in the January 6th insurrection, you'll be familiar uh, with these motions requesting a change of venue. I think Scott McFarland tweets about them every single time a new change of venue motion is submitted. But with trials going on in D.C. at the moment, uh, you know, and this, this odd interaction I had, I thought it would be a good idea to take a closer look at some of these motions for January 6th defendants. Now, I mentioned this in the context of the sanity and competency issues way back in episode 11 in August of 2021. Lawyers have to do something to defend their clients, whether it be, you know, uh, private attorneys, uh, who are looking to justify their pay, or even public defenders who are experienced and know when they don't have a substantive case, and they have to do something to try to get the best outcome for their client. So that could be difficult in a case where there's such compelling evidence. And in all these cases, we're seeing defendants commit crimes in broad daylight, sometimes in high definition, and sometimes on video that they themselves have wound up supplying uh, as they're looking for a street cred on social media. Uh, you know, these are people who live streamed their own crimes and now expect to get away with it. The AUSAs have compelling social media posts that these defendants have many times supplied themselves and other data supporting the cases, you know, verifying the locations of the de these defendants. So, very difficult evidence to overcome as a defendant unless you happen to be in front of Judge Trevor McFadden and uh, have a bench trial. But in these circumstances, 
there's not a lot for them to do. Uh, not a lot of fa fancy Philadelphia lawyering that's going to be able to get a client off when there's this kind of evidence. So that's when lawyers look to other areas, right? You know, I talked about this issue with regard to competency and sanity. Why are they doing it? You know, well, the legal bar is very high. These motions are never granted. But again, lawyers have to do something. So it's hard to do when you don't, you can't build a case from the ground up on the basis of fact. So, you know, one of the things you can do uh, is to request a change of venue. Uh, the attorney looks busy and they can appear to be doing legal work on behalf of their client, you know, make it a good faith effort, which by the way also uh, prevents the argument later on of ineffective counsel, right? So, you know, um, as we saw in Guy Reffitt's case, the, the defense presented no witnesses. Um, so, you know, they got to do something to try to help their clients. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, that is part of the process. And so, you know, even if their client has no prospect of actually winning a trial and probably going to have to suck it up and accept a plea, uh, the, the attorney, you know, they, hey, they're under pressure from families too, right? Uh, so they have to do something. And so where are they going to tell, like, you know, the wife of this one defendant I talked to? Well, you know, they're going to say, well, um, you know what? The jury pool is biased. Let's, let's move it to a different venue. And what the attorneys may not be telling their clients, of course, is that it's extraordinarily rare for these change of venue requests to be granted says right there in Article 3, you get a right to a trial by a jury of your peers in the place where the crime was said to be being committed. And it's, a, it's an extraordinarily high bar. Uh, you know, as I always mentioned, I'm not an attorney, but in reviewing these, I've taken a, a pretty close look at some of the law, uh, some of the cases, some of the precedent that governs venue requests in federal courts. And it's just not a thing that happens very often. Uh, happened in, you know, Timothy McVeigh's case, right? So, you know, basically that was an attack that the Murrable building bombing, you know, killed children in Oklahoma City. So they wound up trying it in Colorado. But uh, in the Tamerlan Sarnayev case in Boston, Boston Marathon, uh, uh, crockpot, not a crockpot, a uh, pressure cooker bomb, uh, you know, they wound up trying that in Boston, right? And so you find, uh, you know, a lot of these cases... Uh, the case of Haldeman in the Nixon series of cases, uh, Nixon's chief of staff, you know, that got tried in D.C. So extraordinarily rare to have things there, you know, move from one venue to another. There has to be uh, very strong evidence, uh, very strong evidence to believe that there's something that has prejudiced the jury. Otherwise, they can just address these issues during the jury selection process as a normal feature of jury trials in America. Now, overall, of course, as I've mentioned many times, very few of these cases are actually going to a trial, and that's consistent in practice uh, with the United States justice system, federal and state. 97% of federal convictions are the result of plea bargains, and that's been the case for a very, very long time. Now, overall, not that many defendants have requested a change of venue. And again, that's in part because it's rare for such a motion to be granted. Um, going through, I was able to find a little bit more 
you know, then uh, 10, and then uh, if time goes on, it's like, I, you know, doing crude internet searches and things like that. Uh, I found that there are probably more. There, I'm probably missing some. CBS News reported that there have been a dozen change of venue requests, but then when I was looking, I was able to find more requests that they apparently didn't find. So they claimed that they were using uh, a extensive review of tens of thousands of pages of documents. I think they may have done uh, something like a search. Um, so, you know, but either way, whether we're looking at my numbers, their numbers, it's a lot fewer, I think, than many people would assume. So, you know, again, these are extraordinarily rare to be granted. And, uh, you know, it may be, and again, the, the claim that I was confronted with was, well, they all want to change it. Well, actually, no. If they want to change it, they, they could file for one. And that's, that's actually not happening. It's actually a fairly small number of cases, uh, which was, you know, in a, in a way surprising to me because I think these things stick out, the press coverage, and yet, um, you know, I'm still going to talk about it anyway because I think it's important to understand why these motions are being made, what they reveal about these cases, and what is going to be the likely outcome. So I might as well take the time here to go down the list of the universe of cases that I was able to discover. And I'm not presenting this as authoritative. My search methods are rather crude. Um, you know, it's consistent, my numbers relatively with the CBS reporting. Uh, and I found 16 altogether, uh, including one couple. Uh, I don't know if you want to count that as one case or two. So um, roughly consistent. CBS said that they had found a little more than a dozen. I think they meant 13. Um, and, you know, there may be motions going on right now that I don't know about. And that could be the case in the future. Um, so I'm, even as I was preparing this article, there was a, a hearing for a change of venue request in the case of Robert Giswan. And um, I hadn't included him on my list somehow. So let's go down the list. Uh, Thomas Caldwell. Uh, of course, Thomas Caldwell, Oathkeeper defendant in the seditious uh, conspiracy case, Technically, perhaps not an Oathkeeper member, uh, not sure, but he definitely played a major role in Oathkeeper operations, allegedly, uh, definitely allegedly, on January 6th. Um, Kyle Fitzsimons, uh, the, the butcher from Maine, right? Uh, man with, you know, crazy eyes, allegedly, uh, who's facing four counts, including assault on a federal officer. Gabriel Garcia, a proud boy who's facing seven counts, including felonies. We'll talk about him in a moment. Coy Griffin, uh, who's since been found guilty of one count, one misdemeanor count in the bench trial before Judge McFadden. Timothy Hale Cusinelli, we'll talk about him in a moment, who's facing seven counts, including the 1512 obstruction charge. Doug Jensen, uh, who's facing five counts, including obstructing or impeding an officer. You'll remember him for his interaction with uh, Officer Goodman, where he chases Goodman up the stairs as Goodman is trying to lead the crowd away uh, from access to members of Congress. Jeffrey McKellop, uh, the CIA contractor, the, the flagpole stabber, uh, who, you know, apparently, allegedly, seriously, uh, injured a uh, MPD captain in the face with a flagpole, facing nine counts. 
and is one of the most serious bodily injury assault on a federal officer. Of course, uh, he's also been a real crybaby and a problem child in court, uh, and is you know currently in pretrial detention. Kelly and Connie Meggs from the Oath Keeper cases uh, both asked for a change of venue. Uh, Guy Reffitt, uh, who of course has since been convicted in the first felony trial. Uh, he was convicted of six counts and is waiting sentencing. Deborah Sandoval and Salvador Sandoval, which I couldn't find in some of the other references, but there was a um, an article, I'm sure it's probably true, even though I couldn't find the legal documents, that they had filed a motion. Uh, and uh, Deborah Sandoval, this is a mother-son pair, uh, faces fewer charges than her son. Uh, there's a joint indictment, and they face a total of 12 counts. George Tanius who is uh, the sandwich guy from West Virginia, who is facing seven counts, including serious assault on a federal officer charges with bodily injury and also conspiracy. Thomas Webster, uh, the eye gouger, who faces seven counts, and I mentioned his change of venue motion in an earlier episode, and as I was writing this, I think yesterday, actually, I wrote, well, anyway, uh, it his change of motion of venue request was surprise, surprise, denied. Riley Williams, uh, Riley Williams, of course, you'll remember as the computer thief, uh, who faces eight counts, including obstruction and theft of government property, and the aforementioned Robert Geeswine, a three percenter, founder of the Woodland Wild Dogs gang, uh, who faces four counts, including the fifteen twelve obstruction charge and an assault on a federal officer with a dangerous weapon. So, I know I, I've probably mentioned every single one of these defendants by name in earlier episodes, so it's, it's kind of a rose gallery, and it is uh, noteworthy that these are all noteworthy cases, right? These are all people who are going to trial. They are all uh, felony cases. And one case that stood out to me as I was going through the filings, of course, was Coy Griffin, the Arizona County Commissioner and founder of Cowboys for Trump. Um, and, you know, I mean, for him, even though he was only, he's really out of all these, the only one who's a, exclusively a misdemeanor defendant, he basically filed all the motions. There are 62 different documents in his case, uh, which is, again, is remarkable given that he was only charged with misdemeanors. So, ultimately, found guilty in a bench trial, convicted only of the count remaining of in a restricted area uh, or building, and of course, is yet to be uh, sentenced. So most of the misdemeanor defendants are taking plea deals, and so therefore these motion, these venue requests, uh, aren't really applicable to them. And you know, these aren't really, for the most part, uh, these felony cases, particularly complicated cases, uh, except perhaps the the case of uh, Kelly and Connie Maggs and that Caldwell case. Um, you know, where they're facing seditious conspiracy charges. There's really good evidence against these defendants, particularly the assault on a federal officer defendants. I mean, if you look at McKellop's case, for example, his attack left, a, allegedly, a massive scar on the face of the police captain that he allegedly assaulted. And, you know, I just don't think he's going to see a great out outcome when this MPD captain shows up and testifies against him, there's a giant scar on his face, right? So good luck uh, with that at trial. And
and Webster's case, right? You know, I mean, which again, just denied uh, either yesterday or, or, yeah, I think it was yesterday. Uh, you know, there's a video of him trying to gouge the eyes of an officer out. And, you know, Jensen's case, um, there's a video of him chasing down Officer Eugene Goodman. Uh, and Eugene Goodman, of course, is one of the most celebrated heroes of the defense of the Capitol. So, you know, it fits kind of with my overall understanding that these are cases where there's not a lot of hope for these defendants based on the evidence. And they're trying to get an all-white jury in Alabama. They're looking for jury nullification uh, because they don't otherwise really have a hope based on the evidence, which, again, is very compelling. So I'm going to go through some of these motions, uh, three of them, actually, uh, that I, I looked at, uh, found on court listener, just to give you your daily dose of outrage at these absurd arguments. But remember, as we talk about this, it's literally in Article 3 of the Constitution. You have a right to a jury trial of your peers in the place where you stand accused. So the bar is very high. You have to overcome, basically, the Constitution of the United States if you're going to try to say that you can't have your trial in the place where you stand accused. Now, I, in terms of case selection, the reason why I'm looking at these cases is that these are all recent motions, and they are all still pending. Uh, one of them in particular seems to go out of its way to insult members of the potential jury pool. That would be the Garcia motion. Um, and, you know, as I, I've said, none of these motions have worked to date, and I expect that that is going to be true of these motions as well. So the first motion I'd like to look at is Doug Jensen's motion. Quote, Mr. Jensen submits that D.C. is so small and the events of January 6th so close to home that the venire must be presumed as tainted. End quote. Now, Jensen is from Des Moines, Iowa, population 215,000. The population of the District of Columbia is 615,000. It's the 49th largest city in the country. Des Moines is the 83rd largest city in the country, but sure, I guess D.C. is small somehow. Uh, the other funny bit here is that Jensen wanted his trial to be moved to Iowa, in part based on press coverage. But you know where you can find some of the best coverage of Doug Jensen's case? The Des Moines Register. They've covered his case far more extensively than the D.C. press has. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. Jensen's argument is based in part on the geographic size of D.C., not the population. Quote, anyone living in the D.C. area was less than, sorry, anyone living in D.C. was less than 7.5 miles away from the events that occurred at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, end quote. Jensen's attorney cites Sarnayev, but of course we should remember that Sarnayev was ultimately tried in Boston. So they also cite the Skilling case, uh, Skilling, of course, uh, Jeff Skilling, the, the Enron CEO uh, in Texas, and the McVeigh case, which was actually successfully moved, you know, for defense anyway, successfully uh, from Oklahoma City to Colorado. Uh, so, you know, the, that attorney has all the, the correct citations. Um, they also cite Rideau v. Louisiana. 
which is a very important case uh, with regard to these venue requests. Uh, I'm not going to summarize it here other than to say it was a case involving an inappropriately broadcast confession. Uh, there was a confession made in the case, and it was broadcast as a relatively small community, and apparently most of the people in the jury pool probably saw it. Um, the evidence in the January 6th cases you know, aren't the same, right? It's not nearly as prejudicial as a confession, right? So it's, it's really kind of not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Again, from Jensen uh, motion, quote, Vivid images splashed across D.C. newspapers, television, and other media outlets for the last 13 months show people scaling the Capitol walls, hoisting a hangman's gallows and noose, waving Confederate flags, putting their feet on the desks in the Capitol, rifling through papers on desks in the Capitol, milling about and hanging from the balconies in the Senate chamber, and appearing to try to break into the House chamber, among hundreds of other scenes. End quote. So, basically the claim that Jensen's attorney is trying to make here is that if your conduct is so outrageous, uh, you know, you can't be trialed in the place where the crime occurred. Now, there's some, actually, even here, just some factual errors, right? Uh, there, there were no images of anyone actually hoisting a hangman's gallows and noose. That's part of the problem. Uh, we actually didn't see that happen. Uh, somehow, this is the most video, video, video crime scene in history, but there's no video of anyone actually erecting uh, or hoisting the noose itself, just images of the, the uh, you know, shoddily made uh, gallows uh, erected with salt-treated lumber. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, they, they also, you know, they didn't appear to try to break in the house chamber, right? They, they did. They did, you know, try to break in the house chamber. They didn't appear to try, anyway. Um, but again, that's that's kind of a, a, a odd claim to say that, you know, well, this looks really bad. Well, yeah, it does really look really bad, but, you know, there are murder trials. I mean, there, there are people who get tried for all kinds of atrocious things all across the country, and they get tried in the place where the, the, the crime was committed. Now, what's interesting to me in this case is that the video of Jensen being lightly pushed by Officer Eugene Goodman is extremely well known. And yet, you know, this motion talks about all this other video, but doesn't actually talk about the video of Jensen being pushed by Goodman and then chasing Goodman up the stairs. So it, it's talking about prejudicial material, but it doesn't talk about the, the one piece of video evidence that actually might be prejudicial for his client. It's kind of baffling to me. Right, again, from the motion, quote, Finally, Mr. Jensen is scheduled for trial in September of 2022. By that time, other January 6th defendants will have gone to trial. The already small pool of even potentially eligible jurors will shrink, and pre-trial publicity will likely experience other spikes. As such, the list of reasons for the court to presume prejudice will only grow in the time between now and trial. End quote. Now, if you follow this through... Um, it's an argument for doing your crimes as a member of a mob, right? If your mob is big enough, you'll have to have lots of trials, and then the ensuing publicity from those trials could be uh, seen as prejudicial. Uh, but moreover, 
they're arguing the exact opposite of the way it, you know, logically might follow. Logically, you would say, and in fact, um, in uh, Thomas Webster's ruling, uh, denying his change of venue request, uh, it says, well, no, time has gone by, and therefore there's less coverage, and therefore uh, less prejudice on, on the part of the jury. So, you know, temporarily, we would assume lower salience over time, and, you know, I, I don't think that this particular bit of the argument on behalf of Jensen for the change of venue is going to work. Now, I found the government's motion more compelling. Uh, almost as if the government is ready uh, to, you know, handle this kind of motion and that they've handled them many times in the past. And, of course, you know, now the government can cite other January 6th cases where venue requests, requests have been denied, right? And the government actually, uh, in, in uh, arguing against Jensen's motion, cites the Caldwell case. Caldwell applied for a motion to change his venue. And, uh, again, he was also denied. One of the things that the, the government does in arguing against the motion by Jensen is that they do a pretty good job of refuting this whole D.C. is small claim. I particularly enjoyed this passage. Quote, D.C. indeed, D.C. residents live in close geographic proximity to every crime that occurs within the district's boundaries, and by this logic could not be impaneled as unbiased jurors in any high-profile case involving acts committed in D.C. That is certainly not required by the Sixth Amendment. End quote. So, that's absolutely right, right? I mean, if you're going to say, well, you know, D.C. is, you know, everything 7.5 mile, miles away from uh, the Capitol, yeah, that's true of every other case, and yet they have, uh, you know, one of, of the busiest courts, in, you know, is with regard to federal courts in the country, and they routinely try cases. Uh, without a problem. So, you know, overall, I mean, unlike some of the defendants, Jensen here is, is represented by a non-insane attorney, uh, Christopher Davis, a D.C. criminal defense attorney, who doesn't actually include anything in this motion that I think is, is really outrageous. Um, there's none of these sort of inflammatory claims that we find in some of the other motions for a change of venue. And, you know, Jensen here, I think, is represented by competent counsel who's not staking out these crazy, ideologically-based crackpot ideas in this motion. Um, you know, I mean, it was a good effort, I think. You know, I was rather amused by this whole D.C. is small line of reasoning, uh, and especially the government's rebuttal. You know, I, again, if you accept that argument that D.C. is small, uh, you, just, you just can't have any trials in D.C. Um, I bring this one up first because, of course, you know, again, like, like all, it's yet to be decided. Jensen's last status hearing was on March 25th, and his next hearing is on May 6th. Uh, so I expect that this motion will be denied at that time. Now, again, I'm not going to do them all. I'm just going to highlight some of the motions that have gotten less attention, but, you know, these are all high-profile cases. Um, so let's now turn to one for a defendant who I have featured in the podcast in the past one Timothy Hale Cusinelli of New Jersey, who you will remember as an Army reservist and security guard uh, working for a Navy installation, who is a self-avowed fascist and who sometimes wears a Hitler mustache. Hale Cusinelli is represented by a private attorney, Jonathan Crisp. 
last month, Hale Cusinelli quietly had his charges reduced. And I, I only found that out, actually, while I was researching this episode of the podcast. Uh, Hale Cusinelli now only faces three counts, including the 1512 obstruction charge. His case is being heard by Trevor McFadden, of course, who I've mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, the first judge now to acquit a January 6th defendants uh, at all, of all counts during bench trial. Nonetheless, in Hale Cusinelli's case, uh, you know, McFadden doesn't appear to have a soft spot for Hale Cusinelli because Hale Cusinelli has been detained since his arrest and he's one of the few defendants not facing charges of violence who has been detained. Uh, quite probably, of course, just because he's, he's a very unappealing fellow and there are lots of people willing to testify that, you know, he has had problematic behavior in the workplace. Chris filed a change of venue request for Hale Cusinelli on March 28th. Uh, here's what it reads in part. Quote, Washington, D.C. was wrecked by the riot on the 6th of January, 2021, and the riot impacted the transportation and safety of the District of Columbia residents beyond that date. Publicity at the time of the event was voluminous, but still continues to this day. That should be and, by the way. It was voluminous and. D.C. became an unwilling host to this riot, and residents in the capital region are conscious of that. As such, public sentiment to any participant, willing or not, in the riot cannot be positive, nor can a jury composed of the region's residents be wholly impartial. In support of his claim regarding the uh, pre-trial publicity on behalf of his client, uh, Chris cites an article entitled, Hitler-loving capital insurrectionist with a history of multiple arrests and Jew-baiting had an army award for exemplary behavior and secret-level security clearance. That was published in Business Insider, the website, in March of 2021. Now, again, the problem here is that Business Insider is a well-known outlet that's not specific to the D.C. market. So, again, if you're looking, you know, this has come up in previous cases. Uh, you're, you're arguing that there's specific prejudice regarding publicity in the D.C. area, and yet a lot of the citations are for national media. How does it move, move the, moving this case to some other place solve that problem? Um, it doesn't. So it's not evidence of any specific kind of prejudice in the D.C. jury pool. It's just an article on a website that could have been seen by anyone in the United States, any venue that you, you might, you know, request that the, the client be sent to. Another quote, quote, While the District of Columbia is not rural, it is geographically small, and the 6th January 2021 breach encompassed the entire city. Even more so, the accused racial, the accused alleged racial and ethnic statements garner the attention of those in the capital region. Quote, the publicity surrounding this matter creates a presumption of prejudice due to its heavily biased nature that paints Mr. Hale Cusinelli as a racist insurrectionist and inflames public opinion against him. End quote. So, again, as in the case of the Jensen case, there's this issue of size, right? That just D.C. is small. And, you know, I think the government knows how to handle that. Um, now, with regard to the alleged racial and ethnic statements that are somehow, you know, 
uniquely a problem for DC? I think that's a, a strange claim. Um, you know, I mean, does this mean that you can only try this defendant in a place where Nazism is popular? Um, and it's simply not the case that these are merely alleged claims, right? These are not baseless claims. Hale Cusinelli isn't a valid Nazi. And even though he's an army reservist, he works as a security guard at a Navy facility. And it's already been stipulated that the Navy conducted an internal investigation into Hale Cusinelli with the NCIS finding that he did hold racist extremist views. Here's a quote from their investigation. Quote, Colleagues told Navy investigators that Hale Cusinelli made near-daily comments against Jews, advocated for killing newborn babies with disabilities, and had issues with women. So it's well documented that he would say things to co-workers such as, quote, Hitler should have finished the job, end quote. So this is someone who's too racist for the U.S. military, and his own co-workers appear to hate him. And they have happily testified against him interviews with the NCIS. So, you know, alleged, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, it's not alleged. This guy's a racist, right? He's a racist fascist, okay? And, you know, he wants to take people to court on that. Just go right ahead. Um, now, this motion itself is, is fairly normal, uh, and it doesn't have some of the hyperbole that you see in some of the other motions, but, you know, still, there's this claim that Hale Cusinelli is being unfairly characterized as a racist, and he therefore can't have a fair trial in D.C. But interestingly, in the motion itself, there's there's no proposed remedy. The defense doesn't suggest some other venue where the trial should be moved, someplace that would be more fair to self-avowed racists and Nazis. Maybe there's some compound in Idaho or eastern Washington State um, but this defendant is so noxious that, you know, you'd have to time travel to find an all-white jury in the Deep South of the 1950s to, to you know, get, quote, a fair trial, right? Um, and, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of great options even then, right? Because at that point, you would have found a lot of World War II veterans who would be not sympathetic to uh, a Nazi such as Hale Cusinelli. So, perhaps an acknowledgement of this, in his motion, Chris asks for special attention and accommodation in the jury selection process as an alternative to a change of venue, including more peremptory strikes and other remedies. Uh, so, you know, we'll see where, where the court goes with that. And, of course, it is McFadden, so uh, maybe he will grant him that. Although, again, for some reason, Trevor McFadden doesn't appear to be very sympathetic toward Hale Cusinelli. Now, this filing is recent enough that the government hasn't actually filed its own motion opposing it, but I expect, of course, that they will do so. And once again, I expect that this request by the defense is going to be rejected and that Hale Cusinelli will be tried by a jury of his peers in the place where the crime was allegedly committed, the District of Columbia. Finally, I'll move along to the last uh, change of venue request that uh, we'll be looking at in this episode as the most lengthy one. Uh, this time comes from Proud Boy Gabriel Garcia, who requests that his trial be moved to the Southern District of Florida, or alternatively, the Eastern District of Virginia or uh, in Maryland. Garcia is represented by Aubrey Webb of Coral Gables, Florida, and Charles R. Haskell 
of the district. This case is before uh, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, which is a bit concerning to me because she's been one of the judges who has handed out very stern lectures to these defendants while sentencing them to things like probation rather than prison time when the government has asked, has asked for far more. Although I do think uh, that, you know, in a lot of these felony cases, uh, maybe her leniency will, you know, be, be lessened. We'll see. Now, this motion is the one that really seems determined to raise spurious issues and insult the citizens of our nation's capital. This time, the defense is relying on survey data, which was commissioned by Zogby to do a survey of 400 respondents who are claimed in the survey to be D.C. residents. Now, I, I talked about this poll in the past, but I haven't actually addressed uh, the actual motion that accompanies it. Quote, Venue survey data obtained during the month of January 2022 reveals in part A. 88% of registered D.C. voters believe that if Garcia went inside the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, he should be convicted of obstruction of justice and civil disorder. B. 73% of respondents believe that anyone who merely entered the Capitol building on January 6 is guilty of insurrection. C. A majority, 64% of respondents, who believe that anyone who entered the Capitol building on January 6 is responsible for others' protesters' violence and destruction of property. C. 70% of respondents believe that anyone, all caps, all caps, anyway, anyone who went inside the Capitol building on January 6 was trying to stop the certification of the electoral vote for president. Now, for some reason in this motion, they were they keep referring to January 6 as J6, which is uh, odd, right? Uh, it's not something that you usually find, this kind of abbreviation uh, in uh, a legal document. So again, this is from the Zogby poll I reported on in an earlier episode, although I didn't actually look at this, this motion. Um, one of the findings in the Zogby poll was that 54% of respondents claimed that they were aware of Gabriel Garcia. Again, as of when I talked about this the last time, I mentioned that the reason why they probably thought that you know, this is just probably untrue, right? Respondents were probably confusing Garcia with Enrique Terrio. Uh, there's no reason why Gabriel Garcia, you know, particularly should uh, stand out. There's a strange clause in this motion on the very first page that seems like a typographical error. No voir dire can, cannot remedy or mitigate this extreme level of prejudice. I think the attorneys either inserted a no that nullifies the rest of the sentence, or they mean can rather than cannot. And it's, at any rate, it actually it reads as the opposite of what the attorney actually argues in the rest of the case, which gives you uh, some kind of feeling for it, despite the fact that there, there are many words uh, in this document. Um, they're, they're not all particularly well-crafted. The motion cites the, the, compar the uh, comparison that Merrick Garland made to the Murrah bombing as somehow evidence that the case should be moved. Somehow, if the Attorney General argues that these cases are similar, that means that Garcia's case must be moved because McVeigh's case was moved. Uh, QED, right? So, you know, again, this... Problem is, in the Oklahoma City case, there was one defendant, right? Timothy McVeigh. 
Most people can't pick out Gar Gabriel Garcia in the lineup. The motion also includes this strange assertion. Quote, approximately 93% of voters in Washington voted against Donald Trump, rendering it the least diverse political population in the country. Quote, the loathing toward Donald Trump and his supporters in the district is obvious. The Democratic candidate received more than 90% of the vote in both elections. End quote. How is that obvious? How is loathing evident from that? Right? You can vote against someone and not necessarily loathe them. Moreover, Donald Trump isn't on trial. Gabriel Garcia is. If he wants to say that Donald Trump should be on trial, he should argue that. He doesn't. So throughout the motion, the defense refers to the Capitol insurrection as, as J6. <coughs> Excuse me, again, it's bizarre. I mean, you need a noun. You have to call it something. Uh, instead, they just prefer to call it J6, which I think is, you know, it reminds me of bingo. I mean, it's really just kind of, of sanitizing. Uh, but again, you know, it's not equivalent. Just the fact that, you know, a people in a district voted against Donald Trump doesn't mean they, they bear, you know, any special pre prejudice against any member of the mob that uh, assaulted the Capitol. Uh, you know, and it's kind of like, well, what are they really trying to say here? I mean, are you really arguing that Donald Trump should be on trial? Because Donald Trump says he has nothing to do with it. If Gabriel Garcia has evidence to say that Donald Trump does have something to do with it, then maybe he should offer that in the motion. Quoting further from the motion, quote, If Garcia proceeds to trial in Washington, D.C., the jury pool in his case would be comprised of those who voted nearly unanimously against Donald Trump and have been barraged with propaganda about a white nationalist attack and are continuously told they were victims of an insurrection, who were placed under curfew and locked down as a result of a danger posed by domestic violent extremists. End quote. Uh, again, sorry, continue quote. Again, Zogby's survey confirms this extreme bias present in D.C. because 66% of respondents agreed that J6 posed a dire threat and the worst assault on U.S. democracy since Pearl Harbor. Now, also, another kind of a sign here. Uh, whenever the authors of this document refer to Democratic officials, they use the term Democrat rather than Democratic, even when the term is used as an adjective. So these are attorneys who don't know the differences between adjectives and, and nouns. Quote, Indeed, within the first week of the incident, they're calling it the incident now, just an incident. Indeed, within the first week of the incident, 73% of Democrat leaders in Washington referred to the January 6th event as an insurrection. End quote. So, this is really weird, right? Instead of a substantive argument, the defense argues evidence regarding the opinions of members of Congress who would not be in the jury pool. D.C., doesn't even have a vote in Congress. They have Eleanor Holmes Norton, um, you know, who's a fine member of Congress, but she's the only one who, you know, member of Congress who might be the jury pool. So why are you citing the, the opinions of members of Congress that, you know, presumably might reflect their own home districts rather than, uh, you know, those of D.C. residents? 
Moreover, the, the, disc, the document itself doesn't say anything about Eleanor Holmes Norton, right? Doesn't talk about what she had to say about January 6th, and she had plenty to say about it. Um, it also cites uh, Cory Bush, but Cory Bush represents the uh, 1st Congressional District of Missouri and not Washington, D.C. Now, regarding news coverage, the motion also makes claims such as this, quote, Local Washington, D.C. news was filled with coverage of the January 6th events and resulting aftermath, replete with references to insurrectionists, white supremacists, and even suggestions of a race war. 20... Former President Trump has been referred to as the leader of these white supremacists and was placed on trial for inciting an insurrection. Now, quote, this, of course, is factually incorrect. Believe me, if Donald Trump had been placed on trial for inciting an insurrection, I would have noticed, right? But this document claims that he was placed on trial. So, you know, this is a factual error. You call it, you know, maybe perhaps a, a trial by, you know, in, in the press or a trial in the court of public opinion. But you, you can't say that Donald Trump was uh, put on trial for something when he wasn't. And, you know, there's just lots of little errors in this motion as well. I mean, they consistently fail to capitalize. Proud Boys, um, and there are lots of little things in there, such as this, quote, He is considered the second highest retired officer that served in the military and is charged in J6. End quote. Again, is considered the second highest retired officer that served in the military. What does that mean? Are they saying that, that he was high? Did they mean to refer to his rank? How about the second highest, you know, rank had held the second highest rank of any retired officer charged in J6. And, you know, why would they use the that rather than who here? I mean, I know it sounds like nitpicking, but it's really annoying to read this kind of stuff in a legal document uh, for, you know, something that they clearly spent so much money on with the poll and everything. you think they would actually have hired better attorneys. Uh, they didn't actually have anyone who actually proofread the thing. At one point, they just cut and paste a whole section of the Zogby poll results into the motion without further comment and to just call it good. And they actually begin the conclusion with, therefore, Garcia cannot obtain a trial by an impartial jury in the District of Columbia. Who begins a paragraph with the word therefore? Quote, you know, it's, it's absurd. I mean, they also say, this trial will not be like some complex long murder trial that takes months to try, end quote. Now, you know, that doesn't really matter, right? I, so, you know, they're, they're trying to say that, well, we can move somewhere else because it's not a particularly complex trial. It is a complex trial. I don't know what you're, you're talking about here. This is a member of a violent gang that tried to overthrow the results of a free and fair democratic election. And it's related to other cases and you guys are, you know, the attorneys are apparently willing to nitpick them on whether or not this, uh, their client's conduct was uh, so egregious that it prejudices the jury. Uh, you know, of course it's going to be complex. Now, I have a lot of respect for public opinion polling, but, you know, I actually find that the courts the rule of law should carry the day, right? And they seem to think that this Zogby poll is going to be persuasive.
Um, now, the government responds to this. And once again, uh, as in the Jensen case, I find it pretty compelling. Uh, it cites the Watergate-era case, uh, Haldeman, in which Haldeman had sought to move his case out of D.C. on the basis of the political composition of the D.C. electorate. Quote, the majority elected, rejected the relevance of this fact, observing that authorities cited by the dissent gave no intimation that communities' voting patterns are at all pertinent to the venue. Again, according to federal law, a case decided by the Supreme Court of the United States, there is no intimation that a community's voting patterns are at all pertinent to venue. This in a case involving uh, someone who was the chief of staff uh, of Richard Nixon. So, you know, the, the, they also cite U.S. v. Chapin, which rejected the claim that, quote, the defendant's connection with the Nixon administration and his participation in a dirty tricks campaign aimed at Democratic candidates and with racial overtones, a truly fair and impartial jury could not have been drawn from the district's heavily black and overwhelmingly Democratic population. So again, that's the claim that was rejected, right? So it was rejected in Haldeman, it was rejected in, in Chapin, and, you know, it's kind of an irony that, you know, the defense is claiming that there's political bias, but they're all they're doing it consistently in a way that their assertion of bias is actually itself needlessly politicizing the case. In their motion in opposition, the government also cites a series of decisions that show the voting record of a given jurisdiction isn't a consideration going beyond Haldeman, including Connors v. U.S. from 1895. Quote, the law assumes that every citizen is equally interested in the enforcement of the statute enacted to guard the integrity of national elections, and that his political opinions or affiliations will not stand in the way of the honest discharge of his duty as a juror in cases arising under that statute. End quote. So that's Supreme Court precedent from 1895. Say, it doesn't matter how people vote. You know, you can't look at uh, the outcomes of elections and then say that, you know, that somehow is evidence of a tainted jury pool. Again, on the size claim, the government uh, makes a strong case again. Quote, although this district may be small relative to other federal judicial districts, it has a larger population than two states, Wyoming and Vermont, and more than four times as many people as the parish in Rideau. End quote. Again, the, the Rideau case, which I uh, talked about earlier. So, Garcia also makes a case uh, in his motion that he's been singled out for coverage in the D.C. press, and the, the government addresses this claim. Quote, Garcia claims that he has been more vilified than other individuals charged in connection with January 6th. Uh, cites the document 54 and 11. But he fails to cite any news stories that have singled him out for vilification beyond other January 6th defendants. Garcia is more than one of 770 defendants and more than 25 Proud Boys members charged in connection with January 6th. And it appears that he has not received substantial coverage in national or D.C. news media. The fact that he, quote, 
ran in the primary in 2022 for Florida House of Representatives in District 116, suggests that he is better known in Florida than in Washington, D.C., which cuts against his request to transfer venue to the Southern District of Florida. So that's pretty strong argument there, right? I mean, the government notes that courts have been reluctant to privilege polling over already extant jury selection procedures, which are presumed to be sufficient. Um, Garcia makes a big deal about being the second highest ranking military officers among, among January 6th defendants. But, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't aware that he was you know, second ranked. I didn't know who's gone, and, and, I, and that's figured in no press coverage, you know, where they've done a, a, a rank order of, you know, the, the various ranks of different veterans who were charged in January 6th. And, uh, you know, Garcia was a captain, right? Uh, you know, he wasn't a Navy captain. Uh, he's an Army captain. And so, you know, I mean, this thing that somehow makes him remarkable, uh, I checked, there's 27,961 captains in the U.S. Army at present. So it doesn't really seem to make him anything special. It doesn't really stand out. And if anyone, I mean, you know, it's the modal rank, it's the most common rank of officers in the U.S. Army. Uh, and if anyone makes a big deal about his rank, it's Garcia himself, who likes to refer to himself as the captain, right? Uh, which I think would be kind of like me referring to myself as the doctor, with apologies to Tom Baker. Um, Garcia makes a big deal about his 2020 primary run for the 116th seat of the Florida State House. Now, his candidacy in this state house race didn't make national news. It's a heavily Democratic district, so he had no real chance in the general election. But that didn't matter because he lost the primary. And in the election, Garcia won just 6,365 votes. And he lost the primary by 18 points. So there are even a lot of people in his district who don't know or care who he is. Um, but again, you know, I, I find the government's argument compelling. If the publicity surrounding his candidacy in 2020 is somehow prejudicial... Why would the court prefer to send his case to the place where he ran for office rather than hold the trial in D.C.? Uh, again, you know, going back to the Haldeman case, Haldeman was Nixon's chief of staff. If he can be tried in D.C., then someone who lost a primary for a state house seat in Florida can certainly be tried in D.C. for a crime committed in D.C. So we'll see. Now, again, I talked about methodological issues in the Zogby poll in an earlier episode, and the government raises some of those issues here. Um, although I really think you know, they should bring me in as an expert witness. I'll volunteer. You don't have to even just a per diem. I'll, I'll take a per diem. Um, but there's a lot that could be done, be done to criticize the work done by Zogby on behalf of Garcia. Uh, although I think this, you know, this work is probably going to show up in other motions, which I think will also suffer a similar fate. Nonetheless, I mean, again, the, the poll was perhaps the, the most compelling part of the motion. Uh, in my opinion, the work that Zogby did is actually overshadowed by the overtly political language used by the defense in their motion. They didn't demonstrate bias on the part of the jury pool, but they really seemed to indicate their own bias. I don't think that going in and criticizing the jury pool 
on the basis of their race or political party affiliation is really a strong way to make a case here. Garcia could have stayed in Florida if he wanted a criminal trial in Florida. Even though Judge Jackson hasn't been particularly tough at sentencing, nonetheless, I don't think that she'll find the, the arguments put forward in this motion are compelling. The broader issue here is that these venue requests, these change of venue motions, are really a real continuation, I think, of the historical condition I already described, described in episode 6 last June on the impunity of white mobs. It's a brazen attempt to claim that the Proud Boys, a group that itself uh, describes themselves as Western chauvinists, somehow aren't racist. And that these allegations of racism nonetheless mean that they can't get a fair trial in a majority-minority city. 52% of D.C. Metro Police are black. And 29% of U.S. Capitol Police are black. And so we had an overwhelmingly white mob attack a police force as drawn from a city in a region that's far more diverse than the Trumpist base of attackers. But somehow the problem here is that the media allegations of racial bias on the part of the mob that brought Confederate battle flags, wore Nazi paraphernalia, and included avowed Nazis and white supremacists among yourself. That's the problem, right? You know, again, these are not alleged allegations of racism. These are substantiated allegations of racism. They've dressed it up using public opinion polling and, you know, it's kind of a disguise. At its heart, Garcia's motion is a throwback to the days of Jim Crow and the all-white jury. The Trumpist mob lost an election, and their response was to throw a temper tantrum in the nation's capital, to attack the Capitol building itself, and to claim that they aren't racist. That the real problem is the perception of racism. They can't have it both ways. You cannot say that you're chauvinists of any stripe and then claim to stand for uh, our ideal of equality. And you can't claim that our system is colorblind and that people should just get over it. You know, you can't say that those are the real problem while going around town tearing down Black Lives Matter flags and attacking people who stand up against racism. The District of Columbia has over 300,000 black residents. D.C. residents don't get equal representation in the House, where they have one non-voting representative, or any representation at all in the Senate. But they do get to sit on juries. So if you want an all-white jury, do your crimes in an all-white space. The time to think about how the jury would feel about membership in a gang that describes itself as chauvinistic when they made the decision to storm the Capitol themselves, that's the, that's the thing here, right? Don't, you know, chauvinism is a simile for racism. It's a simile for nationalism. And so you don't get to say, well, the problem is that my client is being painted as a racist when you belong to what is explicitly a chauvinist organization. So, members of unpopular groups are tried locally all across the country in the jurisdiction where their crimes are committed. So, although I've been critical of some of what I think are the excessively lenient decisions in sentencing regarding the January 6th cases, I'm happy that this case of Garcia is actually before Amy, Germ Amy Berman Jackson. 
This isn't the first time that we've seen this kind of charge levied against D.C. jurors in her courtroom. Berman Jackson presided over the Roger Stone case that ultimately resulted in a felony conviction and a sentence of 40 months in a federal prison before Trump pardoned him. During that trial, Tucker Carlson accused the foreperson of the jury of being politically biased, and Berman Jackson addressed it in court, saying, quote, Tucker Carlson accused the foreperson of the jury of being an anti-Trump zealot. Any attempts to invade the privacy of the jurors or to harass or intimidate them is completely antithetical to our system of justice. I don't think Garcia is going to be able to get his venue changed on the basis of this motion that is currently being considered by the judge. In fact, I think that even someone like Trevor McFadden would draw the line here. It's not a winning play to go before a judge who regularly tries cases with juries made up of local residents and to claim that those residents are biased when the judges themselves likely have their own opinions about the fairness of local juries. Especially if you're a Florida lawyer coming to D.C. to defend a Florida, Florida client who chose to come to D.C. to commit crimes. Thank you so much for your listenership. And I will see you next time.